Soviet leadership really couldn't understand why a small country and how a small country like Israel could defeat their allies. How did Marxism proliferate into U.S. universities so quickly? Like racism, colonialism, etc., etc. And this hostile identity is forced onto Jews. This is not a coincidence. The first thing to understand is this is precisely the dynamic. This is precisely the anti-Jewish, the anti-Zionist dynamic. All right, so we are live with Anat Wilf and Alex Hearn, and we are trying to bring Isabella online as well. She might be joining us from her phone or iPad, but we're going to be improvising today. Technology is not on our side right now. So today's event was going to be a really exciting one because we have some of the, the foremost thinkers and scholars and activists who are on the vanguard of the fight against anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And we're streaming live right now to YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Twitch. So any of those places where you are, uh, please feel free to to tune in. There's a link on my uh, Twitter, on my pinned to my Twitter account, where you can find all the different links wherever you're comfortable watching. Uh, I encourage you to subscribe on YouTube because it will send you notifications and reminders of upcoming events. So hopefully we can get Isabella on because she's an expert in anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And the whole event was supposed to revolve around her research. And we're still, if if we can't get her connected, then Anat and Alex are going to talk about her research. It involves, um, uh, well, let's just say she's an expert in anti-Zionism, Russia, Ukraine, and Israel. She's a research fellow at the Contemporary Anti-Semitism and the Institute for the study of global anti-Semitism and policy. She's a writer for Tablet Magazine, Newsweek, uh, Sapir Journal, and The Forward. Everybody's familiar with Anat Wilf, I'm sure, as well. A preeminent Jewish and Israeli thinker, an author, a leader, and a former parliament member in Israel. Please be sure to check out her books on Amazon. She's got plenty of books you can look at. They're all amazing. We had an event uh, previously about her book, We Should All Be Zionists, Essays on the Jewish State and the Path to Peace. Uh, definitely check that out. Uh, there's also a very interesting one called The War of Return, How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obfuscated the, past, the Path to Peace. Uh, and we might get into some of those issues as well as Alex's new book. Alex is a co-director of Labor Against Anti-Semitism. He's a newspaper columnist for the Jewish Chronicle and Jewish News, and he's writing a book about anti-Jewish fantasies. So we'll get to hear about that as well. Hopefully Vlad can join us as well. He's um, Director of Policy and Public Research at the Anti-Defamation League Center for Anti-Semitism Research. Joe from Israel Advocacy has unforeseen circumstances that he's dealing with, but he, he said he will try to join us a little bit late. Ben Freeman, Ben M. Freeman, unfortunately is ill. Uh, he's got COVID and couldn't attend, but we all wish him well and we hope he gets better soon. So without further ado, I hate to put you guys on the spot because we'd love to have Isabella talk about her own research. Hey, Nat, do you want to maybe start and, and start explaining what your understanding of what she wrote? Sure. Uh, and I will happily emphasize the major contribution that I think Isabella has made in general, uh, and to my thinking in particular. So, uh, 
for quite a few years now. I mean, by now it's more obvious, but it, when uh, it began to emerge, the rise of anti-Zionism on the political left in the Labour Party, um, there was a real sense that this is somehow not, doesn't make sense. First of all, thank you for, for, for saying the very nice words about my research that I overheard you say. I'm just incredibly flattered and I, I can't even begin to tell you how much it means to me to know that whatever I researched and wrote helps people. So what we, I guess we're going to go to the original plan, which is that I would speak very briefly, really for 15 minutes, no more than that. And then, and then we'll get into a discussion. So this is not going to be an academic lecture. You know, I give plenty of those and you can find them online. They, the recordings float somewhere. And if you follow Twitter, I'll be getting some more of those this fall. But this is just not the format for that. I thought I'd give some highlights of, um, of my research and then we'll, we'll go from there. So I'm a scholar of Soviet anti-Zionist propaganda. I also grew up in the USSR. We came to America in 1990 and I forgot all about anti-Semitism. We experienced anti-Semitism in the USSR. I couldn't get into the college I wanted to get into. My dad couldn't defend his situation. I mean, these stories are rampant. Every Jewish family has a story like that. And then I got to the to the U.S. and I thought, well, it's over. You know, it's not going to happen to us anymore. And in fact, I never encountered it in the areas in which I knew anti-Semitism happened, which is entering university or looking for a job. Uh, and we really thought that America was free uh, of, of anti-Semitism. Until a few years ago, I turned on the TV and I saw a news item in which there was a scene, which I think by now all of us know also well. It was a scene on an American campus. I can't remember which one now. It was a pro-Palestine demonstration, uh, placards, Zionism with racism, uh, really angry faces, angry voices, yet people saying that they're not being anti-Semitic, that they're anti-Zionist. And I was really confused. And I called my dad and I said, Dad, what 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 is this? Like I just saw this item on the news. I don't get it. You know, what's why am I feeling so weirded out by this? And he just, and I said, you know, and they they do this and then they say that they're not anti-Semitic, they're just anti-Zionist. And my dad just laughed and he said, you know, we've heard this one before. And that really made a light bulb go in my head. You know, I thought, gosh, we really, we really have heard this one before. And so I started looking into it. And so I've written quite a bit on it. Um, and, and so, yeah, so one of the most striking aspects of contemporary anti-Zionist discourse is the extent to which it reproduces the tropes, the motifs, and the conspiracist explanatory logic of Soviet anti-Zionist propaganda. So specifically, the Soviet anti-Zionist propaganda of the 1970s and 80s, starting with 67 and through the end of the USSR, really. So what are these slogans? I'll read them out for you, but, you know, they're all, if you follow these issues, they will all be familiar to you. So Zionism is racist, Zionism is fascist, this Israel is a settler colonial state, Israel is an apartheid state, it's a tool of imperialism, Zionists are Nazis, um, the Zionist lobby controls American politicians, American police learn their brutal tactics from Zionists. And then, of course, Zionists uh, invoke anti-Semitism to silence criticism of Israel. So all of these ideas that are familiar to us from contemporary anti-Zionist discourse were manufactured in the USSR over 50 years ago. 
The USSR created them to meet its own domestic and foreign policy objectives, including its foreign policy objectives in the Middle East. So why is 1967 a turning point here? Because that year, Israel won in the Six-Day War over the Arab states, which were enjoying massive help and military support and military training from the USSR. Israel's victory was really unexpected and it created a massive crisis. Soviet leadership really couldn't understand why a small country and how a small country like Israel could defeat their allies that they trained, that they invested, I don't know, millions of dollars. And they they started to think about how it could have happened. I'm simplifying, of course, uh, but, you know, but they essentially they became convinced that some massive and powerful force operated behind the scenes against them in favor of Israel because they just couldn't couldn't conceive of the possibility that uh, that Israelis could have done it themselves. And Soviet political culture was in any way deeply conspiracist, right? It was a culture that tended to produce conspiracy theories. This is just 15 years less than that from Stalin's death and Stalin's, you know, the terror years were really a constant manufacture of of uh, fear and conspiracy theories. And so so it was really pretty na naturally that the Soviets would land in the conspiracy territory because here, you know, they have Jews and then also the Jews in, the, in Israel. And then there are also Jews inside the USSR who are starting to demand to emigrate. And Jews in, in America are supporting, you know, their demonstrations in support of Soviet Jewry. And so they're connecting these dots and they're saying, wow, okay, the, the, Zionism. So they land on this idea that there is basically a massive Zionist conspiracy that's operating them around the world. And this Zionist conspiracy is anti-communist, it's anti-Soviet, uh, it's anti-socialist, it's in cahoots with the world imperialist, it seeks to defeat national liberation movements, etc., etc. And they begin to push this idea, among other things, to the global left in the West, and to the developing world and to anybody else who would listen to them because they're trying to undermine the Western public opinion, right? This is all happening in the context of the Cold War. And so they use their massive media apparatus. They translate their articles and books and radio broadcasts into dozens of languages. They beam them and and uh, publish them in, uh, like a, distribute them in, hundred, in 100 countries of the world. I, I've, I've been working with these materials so I can see how uh, these materials were so easily available. I, I've only really looked at, at the UK because it's English, it's easy, but these materials would have been available in France, in, in Latin America, in, uh, in the, certainly throughout the Middle East. And they use, uh, they use their embassies to distribute these materials and to make connections with anti-Zionist groups and channel financing to them and to channel financing to the left-wing press so that it would publish these articles. They use their academy to create scientific knowledge to legitimize the propaganda. Um, so this was a really massive effort, a kind of effort that's only possible if you are a totalitarian or, or sort of semi-totalitarian state, right? The 70s is already not as totalitarian as under Stalin, but essentially a state which controls all of the resources, right? The resources are unlimited. And fighting Zionism was a priority. And so endless resources are poured into it. And what this language does, and this is really important because it's the same language that we're hearing today. It's not a language of criticism. It's the language of demonization. 
when you see it in concentrated form, as I do, right, when I look at Soviet propaganda in concentrated form, it's very clear they're not criticizing. They're not, for example, reporting what's happening in Israel fairly and criticizing what's happening. No, instead, they report selectively. So they report, for example, on Israel's responses to terrorist acts, but they don't respond, they don't report on the terrorist acts themselves. And so the picture that one gets from reading these reports is that Israel is this insatiable, militaristic, wildly aggressive state that's out to just oppress and suppress every Arab inside, which is, of course, you know, if you read the four reports, you would understand that these are responses, but not, but the Soviets don't re didn't report the origin, the, the kind of the actions that, that provoke the responses. So it's very clear that the idea was to demonize and they demonize by bringing in every word that they know or every concept that they know to be um, kind of a, an evil on the left, because that's who, the, who they are addressing in the, uh, on the West, the left, right? So Nazis, fascists, right? All of it, they begin to associate it with, with Israel and with Zionism. Right, all of it. They begin to associate it with with Israel and with Zionism, uh, settler colonialism, apartheid. They begin to connect Israel conceptually with South Africa. They connect what Israelis, what is, is what the IDF does uh, in uh, in uh, in their part of the world to what the U.S. does in Vietnam. So it's a demonizing language that goes on for twenty years, and it really it has an effect. Um, you know, I, I wrote one of the articles I wrote recently um, or this this year for Tablet was on Mahmoud Abbas's dissertation. And I think it's a good piece if you want to understand, excuse me, the mechanism of this, in particular, how they use the academy to whitewash propaganda through it. And you can see that when the academy engages in anti-Zionism as a political project, it really becomes, it subverts its own um, its own purpose and its own values. Uh, it produces shoddy research. You can see how Abbas and whoever helped him write his dissertation are really are taking evidence, distorting it, trying to fit it into the narrative. Sometimes you can look at the quotes that they're using and you can see that the original uh, of the, the original, the source of the quote is actually meant to say something meant to say actually something completely different, but they just take a piece of the quote, rip it out of its context, and use it to support their narrative. So it's it's really important to understand these mechanisms, because today in America, unfortunately, we see also really, really shoddy scholarship, which a lot of people just take uh, seriously because they look at it and they say, wow, well, it comes from a respectable institution. And look at all the footnotes, look at all the endnotes. Well, Soviet anti-Zionist propaganda had lots of footnotes, lots of endnotes, and it was still BS. So I want to say now, I don't want to speak for much longer, but I want to explain why this is important. Um, I think it's important in the same way as it is important for us to know the origins, for example, of contemporary white supremacist and neo-Nazi propaganda, right? It's important for us. I think we understand that we need to know that th the sources of this propaganda in order to understand it, right? So it's important that we understand that it's, it's connected to Nazi Germany. We can't understand co the contemporary moment, the contemporary discourse on anti-Zionism and anti-Israel uh, and Israel demonization if we don't understand this history. And I want to emphasize that I'm not saying it because I'm trying to smear the left or 
act as Joe McCarthy. You know, you always hear this retort. What is this? The ghost of McCarthy? You know, you're trying to smear us as communists. You know, as far as I'm concerned, they could be as communist as they want. You know, we live in a free society. Please be whatever you want to be. But I care about this because this propaganda harmed Jews, real Jews, in a very real way. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of constantly engaged in this discussion of anti-Zionism versus anti-Semitism. Is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism or not? And we talk about it in the abstract as if it's never happened, as if it's like, well, what would happen? You know, but it has already happened. There are entire societies, right? Not just the USSR, but also Poland, the entire socialist bloc that lived under the assumption that Zionism was evil. And we know what happened to Jews in those communities. Jews were excluded from professions, from entire careers. They were excluded from fields of study. I personally experienced that. Uh, Jews could not practice their religion, their culture. They were constantly under suspicion. Every Jew, once anti-Zionist propaganda takes root or anti-Zionist, this kind of Zionist demonization perspective takes root, every Jew becomes suspicious, right? The Soviets begin to suspect that every Jew in their country is a member of the fifth column or an asset of the Mossad and is working to undermine the state. So when we know this history, we can actually stop this silly argument because the truth is that anti-Zionism doesn't have to be anti-Semitic in, in theory, but in practice, it almost always is because it almost always takes on this demonization form. Today, in fact, I would say that practically always it does so. So, um, you know, and I think that uh, the way that this kind of language creates anti-Semitic environments for Jews, I'm glad we have Alex with us uh, because a British Jews certainly know what happened when Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party assumed this land. So, so this is really important to understand. Um, the one other thing I will add is that is, is the reason why these anti-Zionist tropes sound like a repetition of the tropes from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. We are not imagining it. They sound like that because that's where they come from. In the end, once the Soviets established this big political mission and attracted big resources to, to fight against Zionism, they attracted people who were genuine anti-Semites, people who actually were from the, from the right, people who understood the Jews, thanks to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And the materials that they produced, there was a relatively small group of people who were referred to as Zionologists. The people who produced the, most of the materials that the Soviets then pushed on to the global left, which the left great, gratefully consumed, were produced by people who essentially rewrote the protocols. They simply sub substituted Jews for Zionists because this was a Marxist-Leninist state. It could not use crude anti-Semitic propaganda, right? Its reputation depended on the fact that it had defeated the Nazis, it saved the Jews in the Holocaust, it constantly repeated that there is no anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union. And so they couldn't be openly anti-Jewish. So they were just openly anti-Zionist. But the tropes are the same. And demonization and conspiracy theory are deeply connected. And once you have that, a return to anti-Semitism is, uh, is unavoidable. So I think that I will stop here and we can have a conversation. I think, um, I think first we should probably explain some things to some of our listeners. And maybe we should start by explaining, and that was brilliant, Isabella, as always. Thank you. Um, what the protocols of the learned elders of Zion actually was 
and how it came about. Um, so I think it kind of exemplified some things that were swirling around at the time because uh, late 1800s Europe was having a massive confidence crisis about modernity. And so the protocols really exemplified these ideas and it said that Jews planned to infiltrate society and government to control the world. And they were written to defend the Tsar, whose powers were weakening, but also as a reaction to the first Zionist Congress in Basel in 1897. So this idea of Jewish emancipation, which we call Zionism, caused a kind of hysteria at the time. And the protocols are so powerful because it was said to be Jews saying it directly in a secret meeting which was the Zionist Congress. It wasn't secret. It was public and there were reporters there. But this meant that people could kind of project whatever they wanted onto it. It was like a blank canvas and it could be used for any context. So I think that's the it was the most influential anti-Semitic text ever written. And it has this longevity, which people find really difficult to understand. So where in the past you used to have the Jewish question, where people, uh, intellectuals used to frame their arguments, their opposition, their anti-Semitism, their opposition to Jews as, well, how are the Jews harming humanity? And what are we going to do about them? Do we strip them of their rights? Do we assimilate them? Or do we murder them? And this essentially becomes the Jewish state question. How is the Jewish state harming humanity? And what do we do about the Jewish state? Do we assimilate it? Or do we destroy it? And so you can see that the word infiltrated is a really key word for me because it means the secret and gradual entry into society. And I see it used by the left and I see it used by the far right as well. And of course, the protocols really was influential for Hitler as well in his manual for genocide as well as being the ideas behind contemporary anti-Semitism. What I'll add to this, and um, again, Isabella, thank you so much. I think really your contribution to understanding where the ideas have come uh, to the left has really been so valuable because historically, traditionally, people on the left, this is where I situate myself politically, have a sense of themselves as being good people, as wanting good things, as caring for humanity. And therefore, when a lot of people on the left adopt anti-Zionist ideas, casually talking about Israel as apartheid, as colonialist, as Zionist as racism, they seem to think of themselves as original thinkers who have just now come to this remarkable conclusion as a result of their insights and observations of what is happening right now in Israel. And what your research has helped to highlight is that when people are saying that today, they are echoing ideas that were purposefully written and disseminated decades ago to demonize Zionism. So there's nothing that is in response to Israeli actions. It is a permanent idea. And the key connection that you highlighted 
is uh, the idea of respectability. That's also the link between the protocols and the entire Soviet machine. And what you did so beautifully is really show what a major operation it is. And that once it becomes so big, you almost can't unravel it anymore. Because like you said, everyone's quoting everyone else. Everyone's books has footnotes quoting other people. So it begins to get a respectability that you can almost no longer get through. But what the protocols did is it, it gave anti-Semitic ideas the respectability of a book. Today, we don't think much of publishing a book. Anyone can publish a book. But in the early 20th century, to have a book means that it's respectable, it's serious, it's in print. And this is part of the thing that explains its longevity. People can now say this is in a book. It's not just me coming up with crazy ideas. In the same way, Soviet anti-Zionism has built itself as the respectability of academia. I have a PhD. Uh, I am... These are books. So people today, especially as anti-Semitism gets discredited by the Holocaust and World War II and Nazism, anti-Zionism becomes the very convenient replacement of respectability. Because today we think of anti-Semitism as an ideology that exists among the deplorables, the lower class, the margins of society, the people of the intelligentsia, the journalists, academics, they are deeply offended if anyone dares uh, say that they are anti-Semitic. But they have absolutely no problem speaking of themselves as anti-Zionists because the Soviets have already known what it's like to give conspiratorial anti-Semitic ideas the respectability of a book with the protocols and an entire academic machine with Soviet anti-Zionists. Well, that's exactly right. And you know, what's also important in this is that, and that's something that I think the left likes to sort of uh, to glide over, right? They, I never get any responses when I, for example, post how the far left legitimizing these ideas essentially supports or makes it easy for the anti-Semitic far right to make its points. Right, which is why you hear people like David Duke approving of Ilhan Omar or approving of Jeremy Corbyn. You see it, but you see it even historically. So much of the contemporary uh, Russian far right, which really produces some extremist ideology, came out of Soviet anti-Zionism. Once the Soviet Union falls apart, or even before that, once Perestroika starts, essentially the far the the kind of right-wing, anti-Semitic right-wing begins to emerge. It's no longer prohibited from above. And they're reading the anti-Zionist books that the Soviets produced. And they hit them just like, wow, this is great. So today, who is republishing the supposedly left-wing anti-Zionist books that talk about Zionism as racism and Israel as a settler colonial state? It's in, in Russia. It's right-wing presses. It's anti-Semitic right-wing presses that are republishing it. In fact, one of the main figures in Russian neo-Nazism, uh, there is a story about him that he got radicalized uh, to what his neo-Nazi thoughts during his service in the Soviet army in the 70s, when he was given to read these books in preparation for his engagement in the Middle East. Uh, so, and I've actually just recently, I was doing some research in London and I looked at some of the 
literature that the Soviets published in their military publications. I looked at the ones that they published in English because I was interested in what's, what, what would have been available beyond the borders of the USSR. And these military journals published the same demonizing articles about Zionism and Israel. And the Soviets would have given that to their armed source, uh, forces because they believe that if they're going to fight in the police, they're going to encounter Zionist propaganda. So we need to steal them against it. So what happens to this one guy? He reads it and he becomes a full-on anti-Semite and neo-Nazi. And he leads a neo-Nazi movement in the Soviet Union, in Russia once the Soviet Union falls apart. So these crossovers, you see them over and over again. Uh, and I think that that's something that the left really needs to engage with because it, its ideology, as I think Vlad likes to say, who unfortunately I see could not join us, but as Vlad Haiken likes to say, ideology, uh, basically it doesn't have boundaries, right? It doesn't just stay on one side of the spectrum. You know, we are living in open air, right? Once it's said on the far left, the far right hears and it's happy uh, because the far left conf confirms what it already believes. Yeah, absolutely. So under Jeremy Corbyn, we found that uh, Labour Party supporters and officials were frequently accusing um, people objecting to anti-Semitism as being infiltrators, undermining British politics, or even running the Labour Party. Uh, so we got comments like, who funds you, was the typical one. And it, it, it's you can see the direct reflection of, for example, Stalin's you know, uh, doctor's plot where he planned to ship off Jews eventually to four large concentration camps, which fortunately he died before could happen. But he was saying that all Jews were potential spies. So this is this is just a replication of this idea. And then we can see it in memes as well, this kind of protocols, what I call protocols thinking, where people post the same memes and the same comments, the far left and the than the right and but anyone anti-Semitic, wherever they are on the political spectrum. So a staple of the genre are memes listing supposedly Jewish politicians. And normally they get most of them wrong and they have a Star of David or an Israel flag next to them to identify them as a sinister power controlling politics. And this is so, so protocols. The Soviets, what they did is they published, they outed Jews. So Jews, high-profile ones particularly, would adopt non-Jewish names. And the Soviet press in their campaigns would out them as with their Jewish names and say they're, they're a danger, they're a threat. So it kind of performs a function like a yellow star in, in a way. So we, see, we can see this going on in memes in the current day because everyone's a publisher. You don't need a book. And when you think about what the printing press did, I mean, it's it's a neutral thing, the printing press. It can be used to share wonderful ideas or it can be used to spread lies and hate. And social media is so much more immediate and everyone's a publisher and it goes worldwide. So the power of social media in spreading these ideas in words and memes and short videos is really unrivaled and we we're not really understanding just how deep this goes i think another thing that's very important to highlight is uh the impact ultimately this has on the arab world we talked about the soviets coming to fight here so we now know a lot more thanks to the research of jeffrey herf about 
the impact of Nazi propaganda in introducing uh, European anti-Semitic ideas into the Middle East in the 30s and the 40s. But the mantle is then directly taken by the Soviet impact on Arab countries throughout the Cold War. And we have a complete melding of the Arab anti-Zionist uh, vision and the Soviet one. And as you talked about, we don't need to discuss the theoretical links between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, as obvious as they are to us. We can just focus on the practical elements, what happens in practice. And the Arab world, of course, is exhibit A, because the Arab world under the Soviet propaganda claimed to only be anti-Zionist, not anti-Semitic. But the mechanism is exactly as you described. Once you present anti-Zionism as this evil, then you basically argue that certain Jews and ultimately all Jews are Zionists. That's how the jump is created. And then within a few short years of anti-Zionism becoming the defining ideology of the Arab world and especially of pan-Arabism, you basically have no Jews left across the Arab world. And the only difference between the ethnic cleansing of Jews in the 1950s from across the Arab world and what happened in Europe in the 1930s is the existence of Israel. Europe could have only been ethnic cleansing in the 1930s if Israel was allowed to emerge as a country as the Zionists wanted it to be, if there was no Arab violence, if there was no British betrayal. And we see in the 1950s, when there is a massive ethnic cleansing of Jews from across the Arab world in the name of only anti-Zionism, the reason that this ethnic cleansing doesn't become genocide like it did in Europe is because the state of Israel is able to absorb most of the Jewish refugees leaving the Arab countries. But this is absolutely exhibit A of how anti-Zionism supposedly respectable uh, Arabs always claimed it's never about Jews, somehow ended up with no Jews left across the Arab world. You know, once the USSR ends, once the doors open, you know, some people may not know. I, I, I often forget how little people actually know about the USSR. It's one of my other kind of things that I like to, to talk about is, is how we teach Nazi Germany, but we don't teach uh, the Soviet Union at all. So a lot of people may not realize that you you couldn't emigrate from the USSR and Jews started demanding for the right to emigrate uh, soon after the Six Day War. But basically, as, so this, throughout you know this twenty year period from sixty seven until the eighties, the USSR kept saying there is no problem, there's no Jewish problem in the, in the USSR. They're telling the 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 movement in support of Soviet Jewry that they're just making it all up. Uh, left-wing groups in the West, again, I just came back from doing research in the UK, it's really just just incredible the extent to which, including Jewish publications, would republish literal Soviet propaganda about how well Jews are doing in the USSR. As soon as the doors open, a million and a half Jews leave, right? So that just tells you what happens. Again, anti-Zionist regime, Jews just can't stay there, right? They They just flee. Um, and it's interesting also if you if you talk to some of the dissidents, some of the Jewish dissidents who were fighting for the right of Jews to emigrate in the Soviet Union, like Natasha Ransky, 
you know, I think at some point in the 70s, he says that at the height of this anti-Zionist campaign, there was a sense, a smell of pogrom in the air. Now, as far as we know, there were no pogroms in the USSR, but the only reason for that is that it was a tightly controlled society and the state actually did not want pogroms. They were they watched everyone very carefully. It was, as you know, a very multinational state consisting of, of I don't know, like a hundred different ethnic groups, which really didn't want to live together, which is why also when the Soviet Union fell apart, all kinds of bloody conflicts broke out. So that was one of the things that the KGB and the security services in general watched very closely, uh, because otherwise I have no doubt that the kind of the, the test propaganda that it was spread would have had much worse effect. I think it was a um, a really interesting point, which I'd like to expand on about um, Nazi anti-Zionism, because I think that's quite an underreported area too. So it's worth pointing out that the Nazis really created radical anti-Zionism. Um, their propaganda in the Middle East was really a large operation. Just for their radio broadcasts alone, they had about 255 people in that department because of the high uh, illiteracy rates and they could get through to a lot of people with this new technology. And the Nazis said they were anti-imperialist and that the Jews ran US and Britain who were imperialist powers. And obviously uh, the Soviets also adopted that. Now, Jeffrey Hirth, as, uh, as I rightly said, has done a lot of work in this area. And I'm going to read some of the uh, US intel which he, uh, which he published on Nazi propaganda in the Arab world. And um, I'm quoting this word for word. Interwoven into every program is the Jewish menace. The Zionist question provides the basic theme. Now, another thing is that the Allies didn't counter this propaganda because it was pretty popular and fighting the war was their priority, winning the war. So, and there was no real denazification after the war either, as there had been in Europe, soft as it was. Um, so some of the, uh, and it wasn't a source of shame either. So politicians and uh, who were Nazi collaborators joined the leadership of the Arab Higher Committee, for example. And um, there was a lot of continuation there. Um, and that's post-Holocaust. It became unfashionable to openly attack Jews racially, or as uh, as Isabella quite rightly said. So this socially acceptable approach was embraced by by the left, which was and adopted by the Soviets and perfected by them really. So there's this kind of this bubbling away of this idea, which grew and grew and grew because it was useful to people. And I'm going to read another quote. The Zionists tried to make the rest of the world believe that the national consciousness of the Jews finds its satisfaction in the creation of a Palestinian state. That quote is not from the Soviet Union. That quote is from one Adolf Hitler in 1925. So it's quite an early idea. You know, I want to ask Dan uh, if uh, if if there are any questions. I'm not sure how we if we can answer any questions or if uh, 
there's three that I can think of that we can address at the moment. The first one is, uh, how did Marxism proliferate into U.S. universities so quickly? No one would have been openly Marxist 20 years ago at any American university. I'll let you guys talk about that. My response would be Europe. Uh, Europe is basically the main way station and uh, the way through which uh, it becomes prestigious uh, in American universities. So like Isabella described, uh, a lot of Soviet propaganda, not just anti-Zionism, is inserted into the European left throughout the 60s and 70s and becomes the marks of the anti-colonial stance. I mean, it becomes the defining element of the European intellectuals. Now, these European intellectuals are lionized and they become uh, the teachers, the mentors, the people, the intellectuals that ultimately Anglo-Saxon and American universities look up to uh, beginning in the 80s and the 90s. So I would say that this happened through the European intellectual left that ultimately influenced uh, the Anglo-Saxon and American universities from the 90s going forward. Yeah, I think uh, Isabella touched on it as well when she said that after 67, the Soviets intensified the anti-Semitic propaganda campaign and labeled the Jewish state imperialist, Nazi, illegitimate. The same things they're saying about Ukraine today. And this formed the thinking of the contemporary left to split the world into anti-imperialist with Russia, Iran, and imperialists with the US and Israel. And because Zionism is demonized as imperialist, opposing it can be seen as progressive. And that's how progressives can end up aligning with regimes who directly oppose their values. And that's how a Jewish face is projected onto the new evils of society, like racism, colonialism, etc., etc. And this hostile identity is forced onto Jews. Whereas anti-Zionists get to self-define as anti-racists. It's, it's kind of become an ism, right? A rallying point for the disaffected, which really melds with conspiracy thinking as well. And that recent study uh, published in the Nature Journal strongly showed that conspiracy theorists have are likely to be anti-Semitic. People who are disaffected, disillusioned, who have turned away from democracy, who who have a penchant for totalitarianism and dictatorships. So, um, and that's that's why all around the world we're seeing the far right being becoming anti-Zionism again. It's gone a kind of full circle, hasn't it? So you've got it. Uh, there were Italian neo-fascists who used it on their in uh, who who used anti-Zionism rhetoric in their uh, in their rally and a Polish nationalist rally in 2021 where they were chanting "Death to Jews." Um, and when the infamous U.S. neo-Nazi Andrew Anglin, who founded the Daily Stormer website, returned to Twitter, his first post was Zionists. Well, and and going back to the question to the to to the question of universities, uh, you know, it it ties in. I think what Einat said is probably probably ties in with this issue that I mentioned in my uh, introductory remarks that. I just don't see people really understanding what the Soviet Union was. So there is no counterbalancing information for people to really draw conclusions on this other totalitarianism. And so while we have more and more professors who maybe feel 
drawn to criticize the United States and to kind of talk up socialism because you want to oppose your own government and you want to oppose your own system, right? Capitalism, etc. Uh, I, I just don't see anybody teaching well what actually happened to such a huge chunk of humanity under the Soviet regime. And, you know, I read about, speaking of European intellectuals, I read about, for example, tours that European intellectuals took of the Soviet Union in the 1930s. In the midst of Stalin's repressions, people are being murdered, dispossessed, worked, starved to death. I mean, it's a really horrible environment. And here come these, uh, you know, European socialists, and some of them are American too, and they come to the USSR, and they are taken on these Potemkin village tours, and they, you know, th there's a great book about it called uh, Political Pilgrims, I think. Uh, I forget the author, but if you look it up, it's an excellent book. So so the question that the, the author asks is, how is it that the intellectuals whose only job is to apply their critical faculties to the world completely suspect their critical judgment when they get into the country that they believe is the implementation of all of their revolutionary dreams, right? Again, completely blind to the desk. Look. My own great grandfather was murdered by Stalin's regime, completely innocent, right? It's it's like it, it was just it's a story that every former Soviet family has. And I think about, well, what would have happened if these European intellectuals had come on this tour and questioned what they saw and came back and instead of writing praising, uh, instead of praising the Soviet regime and talking about how great people lived there, what if they actually wrote what 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 was really happening in the in the country? Could it be that my great grandfather would have lived and and you know raised his daughters and maybe I would have gotten to know him because his wife, my great grand great grandmother, lived a very long life. I got to know her. So, you know, it's very real. Very real people's lives were in, impacted by this system. And we are now, uh, you know, they were they were killed in anonymity. Nobody knows where their graves are. You know, unlike Nazis, the Soviets didn't really keep track of all these names. You know, the graves are somewhere far, really far, unreachable to anybody, right, in the farthest reaches of Siberia and beyond the Arctic Circle. So they died in anonymity. And now the left comes to me and says, well, yet again, you're talking about Stalin's repression. Stop. Let's talk about great things that happened under socialism. And I want to say no. No, let's talk about these victims. Let's talk about these people. Let's talk about what happened to them. Terrible things happened in the totalitarian regime. And yet it's not being taught. And it's a real, real, it's an issue that I just feel so passionately about. I don't know who to talk to about it. I don't know how to change it. So here you are, you're hearing my pleader girl here. How much of that do you think is um, the fact that some documents were only declassified under Gorbachev? And so in his historical terms, was sort of quite recently found out. Well, but that's already over 30 years ago, right? I mean, people knew. People knew after the secret, the so-called secret speech that Khrushchev gave in, what, in 56, right? Yeah. People knew. There were really, people knew enough. And I think that during the Cold War, it was understood. But then I think once the Cold War ended, I think that there was a sense of, wow, okay, well, we won. This state doesn't exist anymore. So what's the point of of talking about it? And I think that that was a mistake because in these 30 years, the Marxist professors have taught their side and the other side has not been taught. And of course, we have uh, now have a working group. I can't remember its exact name where they uh, defended Assad 
and uh, promoted uh, conspiracy fantasy around Assad. And uh, I think I believe one of them was asked to uh, to identify potential Russian uh, potential spies as well. Um, so I think it is problematic. Very I much. will I, I will say something uh, semi not in jest. One of the main problems in, of the United States is that they look at utterly normal policies such as universal health care, progressive taxation, gun control as insane socialism. So if you call universal health care socialism, I could see why people would think socialism is a good idea. So one of the problems is that within the United States, there's not even just a normal discussion of what just a healthy society should look like. That's the aside. Well, you know, it's a really good point, actually, because it reminds me of this confusion that I often find myself in. You know, when when people talk about, oh, my cat is going to enter the frame right now. Uh, when people talk about socialism generally in the U.S., they talk about, as you say, this kind of social policies. Usually they mean economic socialism. You know, when former Soviet people talk about socialism, the first thing that they often talk about is the ideology that accompanied it, right? And that's what we're hearing in contemporary discussions. So, so the society is still capitalist, but the ideology coming from the far left they, they're just sounding so much like what we used to hear in the USSR. So anyway, I just wanted to say that in response to what you said, because they're, they're slightly, you know, there's slightly different perspectives that are de determined by all of our experiences. Daniel, what, el what else do people want to know? Well, I've got a question for you um, from a, from a user, so, sorry, from a, um, an audience member who, would prefer to remain anonymous uh, is an academic in the United States and um, has a question about something new that's happening. Um, and, I, and I'll get to that in a second. I just wanted to say that this issue, and I'm so glad that you guys are here to talk about it because it affected me personally very much. I, I've lost friendships and have had problems with, uh, uh, I hate to say this, but family members um, where you know, this Soviet propaganda is damaging relationships even inside the Jewish community and um, and certainly with people's friendships and, and those kinds of things. And it's almost like you have to choose between your Zionism and your liberalism or if you're progressive, your progressivism, because otherwise you're not accepted in polite society in the United States or abroad. And it's it's very disheartening to see this. And when I see the Biden administration, for example, um, accepting the nexus definition of anti-Semitism in conjunction with the IHRA definition, which effectively negated completely and allows the attacks on um, Israel and Zionism and essentially on Jews, because most Jews are Zionists, um, to take place, I have a really big problem with that. And the, I think that, you know, as well, introducing CARE, which is a uh, lobbying organization in the United States, which is clearly affiliated with terrorist organizations and was a, uh, a co-conspirator in the largest uh, U.S. Uh, case of terrorist financing, 
how were they invited to participate in the anti-Semitism initiative of the White House? That's a little confusing. So getting to the question, is there, appear, there appears to be faculty members at UCSC, Swarthmore, and NYU Law School who have formed an institute for critical study of Zionism. And none of these people are Jewish, except for one who is against Zionism. And they're holding a conference this fall uh, devoted to fighting against the IHRA definition. And for the, for the crowd of, of listeners who might not understand what the IHRA is, it's a definition of anti-Semitism that the United States actually accepted back in 2019. Um, it's not, it doesn't have any legal teeth to it, but it defines anti-Semitism in a way where uh, un, let's just say calling, calling for the destruction of the state of Israel, uh, calling Jews Nazis, those kinds of things are considered hate speech under this definition. Um, stop me if I'm talking too much, but basically, because this is your, this is your uh, floor, but the question is, if they are fighting against the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, and they're trying to uh, create, to change the curriculum, not only in, in college, but in K through 12, which is going to force, uh, it's going to force students in high school to take certain course material if they want to qualify for colleges. Uh, I think it's in the state of California right now, but I'm sure they want it to be national. So uh, how do we combat these kinds of anti-Semitic initiatives in academia? I mean, the IHRA uh, definition specifies that criticism of Israel is okay. It literally says that explicitly. If you are worried about free speech, then the IHRA will protect you. It's actually just a guide. There's nothing really to get to get so uptight about. It says that in certain contexts, and it gives lots of caveats, there's lots of room for maneuvers. It may or may not be. Here's a few examples. And actually, it's very loose. There's a lot of room for maneuver. And as I said, it specifies that criticism of Israel is fine. So unless, unless your intent on either saying something that is anti-Semitic or on protecting people who's, who, who, who want to say anti-Semitic things, then there is nothing there in the IHRA, IHRA definition to worry about. Quite the opposite. Yeah, I would say with the, that's, that's a really important point. With regards to that initiative, uh, you know, it's, I've actually been looking very closely at it. Um, you know, it's a very radical agenda. I think it's really important to understand it. And I think, you know, how do we fight it? How do we defeat it? I think that the first thing we do is we expose how radical their agenda is. I think we need to to be doing that. Uh, their language speaks for itself. Um, but I do have to say that we, again, it's like with the teaching, um, it's like with the question of, you know, how did Marxist, the Marxist perspective proliferate in universities unopposed? 
I think that we are very behind. I think that this, the American Jewish community really fell asleep in the last 30 years since the Soviet Union fell apart. You know, Soviet Jews left. You know, of course, some people may not know, but the uh, American Jews, British Jews also, uh, and Jews in other countries led a very, very important critical campaign to ensure that the USSR would not treat its Jews uh, as, as badly as it did and, and then ultimately let them emigrate. Uh, but once that happened, once Soviet Jews were out, it's like American Jews just uh, turned their attention to other issues and we, we stopped paying attention. And uh, I think that they and the radical anti-Zionists uh, were not asleep and they were working very hard. So we are we are behind and we are dealing again, we're dealing with industrial strength propaganda. As I not said, you know, it's not something that cropped up out of the recent social justice activism. Right. This is battle tested language, battle tested ideas that once again go back not just to the USSR, but in some ways in their conspiracist logic in particular, go all the way back to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the most enduring, best-selling hate book about Jews. So, you know, this is not to discourage us, but this is just to motivate us to think more creatively. You know, we it's not going to be, you know, you don't battle something that had, you know, massive resources of a massive totalitarian state invested into it for decades. You don't battle it with... But by relying on, I don't know, on a few academics who are doing this research half time, you actually have to put serious thinking caps on and uh, and, you know, get get nimble and creative. But I don't have an answer right now. But I just can say that um, we have to we have to keep doing it. I do have an answer. <laughs> Great. Uh, Let's solve but, uh, the problem right uh, now. <laughs> the answer is uh, specific to the situation. Uh, the first thing to understand is that there's nothing coincidental. You talked about uh, friends, uh, even family members feeling left out of certain circles, having to choose. This is not a coincidence. The first thing to understand is this is precisely the dynamic. This is precisely the anti-Jewish, the anti-Zionist dynamic. It's you begin by creating an entire ideology of evil, of demonization, and then step by step, you basically begin to close the doors because you say, we're fighting evil here. You know, what can be more noble, more just than fighting evil? And that's how Jews are pushed out. Uh, we saw this dynamic play in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Uh, as I said, Exhibit A is the Arab world where no Jews are left. Everywhere that anti-Zionism is allowed to play the full arc, no Jews are left. So what's important to understand is that this is the dynamic. It's not a coincidence. And there is no case ever since we have anti-Zionism and the last century and a half, there's no case where if anti-Zionism is allowed to run its full course, it somehow ends well for the Jews. It just it just doesn't happen. Uh, I was also in an academic conference a few months ago about Zionism and American Jews, and a lot of Jewish professors from Israel studies departments, and those are departments established after the Middle East departments became too anti-Zionist, the thinking was, okay, let's 
make sure that there's a place where Jews are not academically persecuted. So let's establish Israel departments. And now you have in the Israel departments, many of them have become anti-Israel departments. And I remember thinking, sitting in that conference, and it's not a coincidence that the speakers who were not anti-Zionists in the conference were in large part not academics, uh, with people like me or academics that are retiring, like Jeffrey Herf, or uh, people who were from the administration. Uh, one senior person who dealt with Palestinians had to really like say, you know, it's not all Israel's fault. And that was a really radical thing to say. And that was someone who basically was involved in negotiations, but he's not an academic. And I remember looking at all these young academics saying apartheid and settler colonialism with this kind of academic smugness. And I'm thinking to myself, in what world do you think this ends up well for you? In what world do you think that if you as Jewish academics keep feeding this anti-Zionist beef, it will somehow spare you in the end? And it won't. Uh, and I've written a piece about it where I called it the, the, the pound of flesh dynamic, where basically Jews are, whenever Jews hand over a pound of flesh, you know, they start by criticizing Netanyahu, but at the end they have to engage in exorcism ceremonies uh, by which they talk about how Zionism is a sin and they're the good kind of Jew who hates Zionism. And there's no respite. There's always a demand for more. So my response is that the only way to fight it is to understand what's going on and to be very clear that you're not feeding the bits. I said that the only response to anti-Zionism is actually Zionism, is to stand up for yourselves, stand up for your people, because there is no world in which feeding anti-Zionism ends up well for Jews. None. Well, that's a really important point. And it's something that, you know, in a slightly different way, I've been thinking that probably the answer, and it's not a short-term answer. And this this is where I was saying that, you know, we fell asleep for, for 30 years. I think the answer has to do with really going back to the school level and teaching Jewish children better about Jewish identity. You know, other people have also have said that, you know, the building of Jewish identity is really crucial here. I think that you only become as a Jew, this kind of radical anti-Zionist, if you really don't understand what you are saying, Einat, that, that this is not going to end up well for you, um, you know, the anti-Zionist beast is going to come for you as well. Yeah, I, mean, I think, obviously, Jews are a people, and Zionism is a part of many people's identity, many Jews' identity. And you may as well outlaw keeping kosher or going to synagogue. In fact, that would probably affect less Jews than anti-Zionism in reality. And yeah, all anti-Semitism has always been framed as a liberation movement. They always say this last lot, they were wrong. But this time, this time it's justified. This time it's real. And what I experienced was purity tests. Denounce Zionism in my hostile terms. That was the insistence. It's racist. It's colonialist. You have to denounce it in these terms or you're not welcome into the community of the good. And what Dave Rich wrote in his book, um, 
was quite an interesting precursor in the wake of the 1975 Zionism is Racism resolution in the 1980s, student Zionist groups were banned and that had the effect of banning Jews. So whether intentional or not, the effect is anti-Semitic. And also now we are so polarized we are with social media, we live in echo chambers and anti-Zionism is so much more attractive because everyone's being pulled to the left and to the right and there's no middle ground and both the left and the right are very much attracted to the conspiracy fantasy of anti-Zionism. I think it's also worth pointing out that anti-Zionism started long before Zionism, the contempt, the, the, the modern realization of Jews returning to the ancestral homeland, the actual push towards that anti-Zionism started, you could argue, with Bishop Augustine of Hippo, who said that Jews should be murdered in his uh, doctrine of Jewish witness, that Jews should not be murdered, that they proved Christian superiority because they had their homeland and their self-determination removed. In other words, Christian identity is linked with anti-Zionism from that early time. And actually, Jews might not have survived past that time without that ideology, funnily enough. But then later, you have the blood libel template. And blood libel was created in, uh, in medieval Britain and was the was the lie that Jews drink the blood of Christian children uh, to revive. Well, this is what Thomas of Monmouth, who really created the template, he wrote that it was to revive Jewish self-determination in the ancestral homeland. And so you have anti-Zionism once again. And then in the 1800s, you had the press publishing cartoons, imagining the Rothschilds leading the Jews out of Europe and to Israel. This is before the first Zionist Congress. So I think we have to realize that there is really, really deep roots, a cultural heritage of anti-Zionism that is very, very long standing and that society has always used to kind of to gain its confidence. You know, I want to address something. I just glanced, uh, glanced at the chat. I finally figured out how to uh, to look, how to see the comments that people are making. And I, and one jumped out at me because it's something that people often ask me. So it says that uh, the, the, the person says that he, he or she believes that uh, Putin's Russia is behind the latest uh, anti-Zionist push. And I just want to say that, you know, it's, it's actually really interesting um, that as soon as the USSR collapsed and as soon as it started, it stopped funding its anti-Zionist campaign, as, as soon as the flow of the campaign stopped, essentially the whole thing collapsed, which really just shows you that there was nothing natural about it, it came straight from the top. Um, and it never, it never resurrected. You know, today when Russians who grew up in the USSR, uh, you know, who are above the age of, I would say, you know, 40, maybe 50 at this point, when they hear this anti-Zionist stuff that we are dealing with in the West, they, they're like, it takes them back to their childhoods in the 70s and 80s. So the, Russia isn't like, 
I'm Russia may be playing in this field in the sense that Russia sees, I'm sure that they, they see just how divisive and kind of hot this issue is. So they may be playing into it. I'm pretty sure, though, that they're not the main player the way they used to be. Uh, again, today, the anti, anti-Zionism it has been incorporated into the far-right anti-Semitic propaganda, but overall, there isn't state-sponsored anti-Zionist campaign in Russia today. Daniel, I think we can end, right? Yes, yeah, so um, do you guys have anything further to add to, 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 add to this? I know there's a lot of questions um, in the comments section that we haven't gotten to, but uh, it's really up to you guys how much time you have. If if um, if it's time to go, then then let's wrap it up. What we can do is we always have an open mic um, Twitter space after uh, after these events. So I encourage everybody who's in the audience now, if you have a Twitter account, come join us. Um, Isabella, did you have anything further to add, Alex? Well, I could uh, I could say lots of things, you know. I could, uh, but I, I think I would just say that we really just have to to again underscore. We have to understand that this is what we're dealing with is a phenomenon with a long history, and we have to just be very very skeptical about it uh, and and understand that it's very harmful for Jews. I would say that like Christian anti-Semitism had nothing to do with the love of Jesus and the blood libel had nothing to do with a love, with a love for um, the protection of children. Anti-Zionism has nothing to do with a love for Palestinians. Here, here. Uh, I would just highly recommend to follow whatever Isabella writes. Uh, again, it has been incredibly important to my think uh, my thinking she's made a really valuable contribution to finally exposing where left-wing anti-zionism comes from the understanding its deep historical roots and that none of it has anything to do with what israel did this past year it's much more ancient than that thank you Anna. and i would just add to that that for to, to build on what Alex just said, that uh, if pro-Palestinian people who may be watching this, if you're really concerned about Palestinians, then you need to be concerned about Palestinians everywhere in the world, including 5,000 men, women, and children who were recently killed in Syria, including 400,000 who were uh, let's just say 200,000 of those were ethnically cleansed from Kuwait and others who are living in refugee camps in Lebanon. And there, there's Palestinians all over the world, except the only ones that get discussed are the ones that have anything to do with Israel. The rest are neglected. Daniel, thank you so much for organizing this. It's really, I'm, I'm just so glad that we could do it. And and thank you, Einat and Alex. It's just it's such a pleasure to to be on screen with you and to be talking to you with you together about this. Likewise, thank you. and keep up your great work. Thank you guys so much for making the time. We really really appreciate it. For everybody who's still with us, come join us on Twitter for the uh, open mic session, and we will see you again next week. <laughs>